So where we are presently in our travels through the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus has just finished, he's completed, what is known as the Olivet Discourse, a sermon that Jesus gave during the week of Passion from the Mount of Olives where he discusses eschatology, he discusses future events, some to be fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, others still waiting to find their fulfillment in future events. Wonderful section of scripture, a heavy place, a heavy time, the substance is weighty. I don't really like sometimes the chapter and verse breaks. In fact, I I think the the chapter break here in Matthew's gospel added by the translators uh, is poorly placed because we begin chapter 26 verse 1, now it came to pass, which Matthew's indicating uh, after he's finished this sermon... When he'd finished these sayings, he then says to the disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, assembled at the place, the palace of the high priest, who is called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. So Jesus finishes discussing future events. Things that were of interest, things that were relevant. But then he brings it back down. You know, he's done with the sermon. He's done with that discourse. He's like, you guys are concerned about things on the horizon. Uh, May I remind you of, of immediate things. Things that are about to happen. Things that you're about to see take place. And for another time. He tells the disciples that he's going to be crucified. And then Matthew in verse 3 gives us a little commentary, a little insight, a little background that while these things were happening, there was a meeting taking place at the home of Caiaphas, the palace of Caiaphas, who at the time was the functioning uh, high priest. And the, the plot, the plan, the discussions revolved around what to do with Jesus They've already determined that they got to take him out, that they have to silence him, that they have to minimize him. He's become too much a threat to their power, to their influence, to their notoriety. The question wasn't what they wanted to do, but how they were to go about doing it. And the consensus, the idea, at least at this point, is that they can't do anything during the Feast of Passover. Again, keep in mind, Jerusalem, the population has swelled to two to three million according to Josephus, who is a first century eyewitness and historian. Passover is very nationalistic. Passover celebrated God's deliverance of the Hebrew people from Egyptian captivity. It's when the angel of death came, the tenth plague, and would pass over any of the homes that had the blood of the lamb across the doorposts. Those homes without the blood of the lamb, the angel of death would slay the firstborn son pandemonium in Egypt, and God would use that event as a catalyst with the leadership of Moses for his people to be delivered. Think about that. That's a celebration of the deliverance of captivity from a foreign power. And here they are, again, under the, the thumb of a foreign power, the Romans. So Passover is already very nationalistic. It's a bit rebellious. It would be like America being conquered and us still gathering to celebrate the 4th of July. 
sets the atmosphere. So they're like, we can't make a move on Jesus. He's very popular with the people. And if we were to make a move, we could incite a riot. If there's a riot, Rome would have to crush it. Our positions would be at stake. We can't do this. Interesting, the word that, that Matthew uses here, they discuss some type of trickery. They know they can't be forthcoming with their intention. They need a time, a place, they need a locale apart from the people. They need to do this in secret. They need to make a move when the timing was right. Now, when we get to verse 6, you need to note that there is an absolute change in chronology. Now, up front, we've mentioned this before, but it's worth reiterating. That Matthew does write with a, a general chronology of events, but it's not, it's not thorough. In fact, that's not really his intent. His intent isn't to present events in a chronological sequence. Matthew's intent is to present events more thematic and how they relate to what's happening. So there are times that Matthew will break chronology with specific intention. So he's just, with an uninterrupted two chapters, giving us this Olivet Discourse. That immediately segues into, hey, while this is going on, immediately after Jesus tells them, I'm going to be crucified, while that's going on, he has inside information about this meeting at Caiaphas' house. Now, we're already told Jesus makes the statement, right, that after two days is the Passover. So that sets us in a chronology of when he says these things in context of the Olivet Discourse. But the story we're about to look at, beginning in verse 6, that has a parallel account in John 12 and Mark 14, occurs six days before the Passover, actually places this event before the triumphal entry of Jesus. And that, that's important. Now, that's not a contradiction. That's not a conflict. Matthew is writing with a purpose. He's presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. He's now transitioning into the king being rejected. And he's going to articulate a little bit more of, of how Jesus was betrayed, how he was denied, some of the background to it. So he gets through with his narrative. He doesn't want to interrupt the sermon. And now he's like, hey, let's backtrack for a moment. Let me fill you in on some other things. A flashback, so to speak. So that's kind of the context. We break chronology. We go back four days. Again, this is before the triumphal entry. We're told that Jesus was in Bethany, which is again a suburb of Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You would go through Jericho coming from the Jordan. You would go up Bethany, Bethpage into Jerusalem. Jesus is in Bethany. Matthew tells us that he's residing at the house of Simon the leper. And a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. What an interesting scene. Now Matthew doesn't give us, he doesn't identify for us the woman. Um, there's a lot of theories as to why Matthew doesn't identify the woman, whereas John does. Uh, one of, I think, probably the best theories as to Matthew's omission, obviously he knows the identity of the woman. He was there, he was present, he's an eyewitness to it. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic gospels are written much earlier. And in fact, they're written at a time where a lot of people are still alive that are included 
in the stories. And it could be that Matthew conceals the identity of the woman um, to protect her. Again, from the Romans, from the Judaizers, from certain influences. John writes many years after the fact when most of the characters have already passed away. John was the youngest of the apostles. He was the last one to die. He dies ultimately of natural causes into his 90s. He writes the Gospel of John, but he has a little bit more license and liberty to name people because there's no consequence to the individual in question. So that's a best explanation as to why Matthew doesn't identify the woman, but John does. And we know that the woman is Mary of fame, Mary and Martha. Three times, Mary is, is included in the scriptures. The first instance, you have Mary and Martha where Jesus comes to town. And Mary is there at the feet of Jesus with the disciples listening to him teach. And Martha, famously, is busy preparing the meal. She's kind of ticked off about it, right? And so she comes and she brings this to Jesus' attention. My sister isn't helping. Mary had a love for Jesus to sit there, to soak it in. Mary also, famously, her brother, Lazarus, passes away. And there's this, the exchange that happens with, with Mary and Martha and Jesus. And why didn't you come? Why did you wait? Why did you tarry? This is another instance we have Mary, a special lady. And we have her bringing this alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, perfume. Now, before we get to that, this man, Simon the leper, there's a lot of theories in regards to his identity. Again, you can find various opinions. I think the best, um, it's, there's two things to note. One, it's very likely this is the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Again, Jesus is residing in his home. We know that Jesus has a deep relationship and affinity for this family. Every time he comes to the city of Jerusalem, he stays with them. He lodges with them. We don't know if there's... Uh, family connections or, 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 or past history. Uh, we don't know when they met. Interesting to note that the man is referred to as Simon the leper. Now he's not a leper at this point in time because he wouldn't be with them. One theory, again, the implication, the leper in a past tense. That at some point, unrecorded in scripture, and please note that, John, John makes the, the the observation, again, the, the apostle writing last, kind of concluding the gospel narratives. John kind of at the end of, of, his, of his writings say, please note, if we wrote everything there was to write about Jesus and what he did, you couldn't contain the volumes in the greatest of libraries. There's only a little bit of Jesus' ministry that we actually have recorded. A little bit of, of the days. There's way more of Jesus' ministry and the things that he said and the miracles that he performed. We don't have recorded than the ones we do. And this is a good example of it. This man, Simon the leper, the father of, of, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who's always opening his home to Jesus. At some point, this man was a leper. And you can go back and you find those places. We've seen them in the Galilee or in Judea where Jesus, we're told, spends all night healing the town. You know, anyone that was brought out, Jesus performing miracle after miracle after miracle. Maybe this man at some point 
had come to Jesus and had been saved and had been healed, had been liberated from this terrible disease that was a death sentence. He was a leper until he met Jesus. And then after that, Jesus was always welcome in his home. My friend, we are all former lepers as well. Lepers lost in our sin until we encountered Jesus and were liberated. And may he always be welcome in our homes as a result. So you have this man. Jesus is staying there with him. Mary comes. And she has this oil, an alabaster flask. It's believed that this would have been worth, again, John seems to indicate, around 300 denarii, or in modern, modern terms, in ways that we can think about, a year's wage. This was a very uh, unique th- possession, a unique thing to have. It was very costly. You know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, whatever you make. Think about a, taking a year's salary. Uh, this was no doubt reserved for a special occasion, whether it be her wedding night, whether it be a funeral of some kind. She has this alabaster flask of very expensive oil. And Jesus is chilling, the guys are there, they're hanging out, they're lodging with Simon, they're having dinners, the idea of Jesus sitting at the table. They're having a meal. And in the midst of this meal, unprovoked, unsolicited, you have this woman. Whether this was a spontaneous act, whether this was something that had been planned, Mary, likely listening to the words of Jesus, where he keeps and continues to make it clear what's about to happen. She says this is the moment. She comes and she breaks the flask. And the way that these things were crafted, once you opened it, you used it. Couldn't be stored, couldn't be reused. We're told that she pours it on his head. John tells us that she also pours it on his feet. She begins to clean his feet with her hair and her tears. Again, taking the gospel narratives, combining them. Uh, This was probably a good amount of oil. Started at the head and it rolled all the way down to his feet. Imagine the smell. And note that that smell, this beautiful, this fragrant smell, this perfume, would remain with Jesus for the next few days. Now we don't talk about the smells of the cross or the smells of the scourging or the smells of the Passover Seder. Jesus is anointed with this perfume. It's fragrant. It's potent. And there is an aurora of worship, of love. As Jesus is this bloody shell, as they strip him of what he has, there's still a fragrance. The smell. Few men have probably ever been crucified having such a smell. And yet she comes and she pours this out. Now, the context and the reason that Matthew is bringing this story is that there's a reaction to this from the disciples. Jesus accepts this. Jesus has no words of rebuke for her. He knows what's going to happen. He welcomes it. But, verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. And they said, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Again, John lets us know who kind of the ringleader was. 
to this perspective, this reaction, happened to be Judas. Judas Iscariot was the money bag. He was the treasurer. He held the money. And he, along with some of the other disciples, they see this expression of Mary. And their reaction to it is like, what a waste. Like, this is such a valuable asset. It could have been, you know how much ministry we could have done? How many people we could have blessed? How many mouths we could have fed if we had just taken it and sold it at some of its value? This is their reaction. I got to say, there's a lot of deacon boards that have had similar reactions to gifts and ministry. But Jesus is looking at this from a totally different lens, and he accepts it, and he welcomes it, and he's blessed by it, and it ministers to him. It's a moment between he and Mary. And Jesus, he's aware of their reaction, verse 10, and so he says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. Mind your own cotton-picking business. I'm her God, you're not. This is what she felt led to offer. You have no right, no place, no standing. Verse 11, Jesus says, For the poor you'll have with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Whether Mary knew that she was doing it for her bur his burial or not, whether she understood the full implications of what she was doing, we don't know. But Jesus makes it clear. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman, <clears throat> what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. You know, for me, and I'm going to kind of take the passage a little out of context, because this was a pivotal verse in my life. I was in Bible college, went to Bible college in August of 2001. Last place I, I ever wanted to be uh, was Snellville, Georgia. Uh, so I went to California, Southern California. And three weeks into my first semester, September 11th happened. And I went to Bible college with the understanding that, like, I was interested in full-time ministry, but I knew by watching my dad, you didn't do this as a career. You could do anything else in the world, but pastor a church, do it. Because pastoring a church is hard, and it's difficult. You have, it has to be a calling that you can't escape. And I had not experienced a calling. I was interested in ministry, but there hadn't been a call. So I had designated a year. I was going to go to Bible college for a year. And just see what happened. This September 11th happens. It occurs. The world changes. Everyone's world gets rocked. It's an amazing time. And I felt a call. I mean, it was stark. It was pronounced. I experienced it. And I was ready that very moment to go home. Time was short. Souls were being lost. We didn't know what was going to happen. Jesus could be coming back. I was ready to forget Bible college and go into ministry. So I called to inform my dad. I was dropping out of college. The experience to call, but I was coming home. And he said, no, you're not. And he took me to this passage. 
with the context of the backstory and whatnot. And he made this, this statement. He says, you know, Zach, ministry will always be there. It's a bottomless pit. The poor you'll always have. Ministry will always be there. But this time in your life to just simply sit at the feet of Jesus and be ministered to and receive from him, this is a part of your life, this is a time that you'll never have again. The poor you will always have, ministry will always be there. There will always be people that will need to hear. But right now you have a chance, a unique one, to just sit at the feet of Jesus. Needless to say, that struck a chord, and I stayed for the two-year program, finished it out. And then, yes, ministry has been (laughs) never-ending. And there are times where you long for the moment of like, man, could this all just slow down? And I go back to that moment to just be able to sit. You see, Mary understood. You know, you can spend money and spend money and spend money, and guess what? You're not going to make a dent in the work that needs to be done. Not to say that the work's not important, and you can sympathize to a degree with these men. Hey, they got the big game, the big picture, but they forgot about Jesus and Mary. And she just wanted to love her Lord. You know, we don't have a right to judge the expression of other people's worship. Or the expression of someone's heart towards the Lord. It's between them and their God. Mary, Jesus says this will be a testimony, a memorial. She will be known for this. And isn't she? Recorded in the Gospels, memorialized three different places. Amazing. Now, again, that sets the stage. Again, we go back in time, flashback. There's this moment, a flashpoint. Judas is upset about it. We really needed the money. This was a waste. He's irritable. So, verse 14, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot. There's a lot of debate about where Iscariot comes from. Could be the tribe of Issachar, which would place Judas in a a totally different category from the rest of the apostles. Uh, Most of the apostles were all Galilean. Uh, Judas seems to come from a different region. Could have been more of the the upper class aristocrat. Uh, Judea, Issachar, a different tribe. There's some debate about what the word means. But we are told unequivocally that in context to what was happening, Judas, he goes to the chief priests, Caiaphas, who we've been introduced, and he said, what are you willing to give me that I deliver him to you? So they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So understand the flow of events. They're looking for trickery. They're looking for a time, a place, a moment. But you need somebody on the inside circle, and they had not found one. And as a response to this situation with Mary and what Judas saw to be wasteful spending, he's like, I've had enough. And he goes to the chief priests, and he strikes a deal. I can give you a time, a place, a location. I can give him to you in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, which is not much money. In fact, according to Exodus, it's the least amount of money. It's the minimum requirement for a slave. The implication being that Judas is not doing this for money. Why Judas is doing this, we really don't know. 
We don't know why exactly Judas betrayed Jesus. I think probably the kindest explanation is that Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. That there was an application in which Jesus, they had all rallied around him as the king. He was the Messiah. They all anticipated they were going to Jerusalem and lead a revolution and establish a kingdom. And Judas was vested. He was in this. But Jesus keeps like being a downer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. Could it be that Judas is wanting to actually put Jesus into a confrontational uh, dynamic where he has to act? That he can't be passive. That's the kindest explanation. It's not a biblical one. We don't know. Could Judas have just been greedy and 30 pieces was good and he was bailing? Maybe. Was he just motivated by evil? You know, we love to try to explain why when we see evil, don't we? I mean, we see that with every school shooting. I mean, we jump into all of the whys, the explanation. We, we have to try to rationalize evil as opposed to taking, there's just evil. There's just wicked people in the world. There's demon possession. There's darkness. You can see it in people. Like, there's not, a, there's not an explanation apart from, it's just there's evil. And Judas was evil. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the twelve. And so from this point, he's seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. Now this deal gets hatched a few days before. Judas is in the midst of it. Jesus knows about it. Now, we jump back to chronology. So that's our flashback. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover. And so he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So the Passover would be initiated, again, with its origins being the Exodus, at the beginning of the feast. So if you, if you recall back to the law first mentioned, the first mention of Passover, Moses comes to the people and he says, this is what's going down tonight. God's going to send this angel of death. You need to get ready because we're leaving. You need to eat a lamb. There needs to be a lamb. You need to spill the blood at the doorstep. You need to put the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, up and down. You need to eat the lamb. You need some sustenance. There was also a few other, there was bitter herbs that are mentioned. There was matzah bread. Unleavened bread was also mentioned, which is why this is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was to be unleavened so that yeast wasn't included within the dough. They didn't have time to let it rise. Again, things were going to be happening very quickly. Have this meal, put the blood, eat the lamb. There's bitter herbs. Have the unleavened bread. Get your lunch pack ready. Because in the morning, Pharaoh's going to say, go, and we're going. So that's kind of the origins, the, the, the preparation. Now, over time, and it's likely during the Babylonian captivity, this, what we call the Passover Seder meal, uh, was 
was worked out in, in the way that we kind of see it today. It was expanded. Again, I'm not a huge fan of Seder dinners in, in, in Protestant churches because it's really not a biblical thing. There's a lot of great imagery. There's a lot of, a lot of great symbolism. It's an interesting cultural thing. But in regards to like what was required to be eaten on Passover, there is no biblical, like specific biblical mandate or order or whatnot. Now, by the time of Jesus, there was traditions. The rabbis had talked about it. There were various cups. There was a whole rigmarole. That is very consistent with how it's done today. So the way that Jesus celebrated Passover, this dinner, uh, you can enjoy a Seder and, and see the parallels. And again, there's wonderful, beautiful imagery about it all. As far as what God had mandated, there was a lot of give and take. So Jesus is going to have this, this dinner. They need a location. Is this similar to the way that Jesus procured the donkey? In the sense like, hey, you go, you're going to find the colt, say, hey, Jesus wants them, and they're going to be like, okay, I guess so. You know, like, or was this prearranged? Is there like some miracle angle to this? I, I tend to gravitate a little bit more towards a prearrangement. Again, the upper room in which Jesus would have Passover very likely uh, was the home of another Mary who had a son whose name was John Mark. Again, we find this interesting detail uh, in the other Gospels that during uh, Jesus' arrest in the garden, a boy it goes to flee. He's grabbed. He leaves behind his robe. In the scene when you picture Jesus being arrested, there is probably a teenage boy somewhere in the scene streaking butt naked across the garden of, uh, of Gethsemane. That's likely John Mark who becomes known as Mark, who's the, the, the author of the second gospel. So it could be that Jesus, this home, it's the home of John Mark. There's an upper room. It's there in Jerusalem. And so Jesus goes, there's an arrangement. Now the two disciples that are sent to get ready for the dinner. So they're in Bethany. You need to go get it all prepared. We're told in, in another place that it's Peter and John, the oldest and the youngest. So they're to go, and they're to prep for Passover. So they, they know where the room is. They've got to get all of the, the fixings. They've got to get it prepped. The essential component of preparation for Passover would be getting the lamb. I mean, of, of all of the, the aspects of all the food, you've got to have a lamb for Passover. And you would go to the temple to get a lamb. So you've got Peter and you've got John. And in their preparation and getting this meal together, they would go to the temple to procure a lamb for the Passover, something that they would eat. So they would pick out a lamb. And they're going to feed 12 people, right? 12 men. So, I mean, you've got to have a pretty good-sized lamb you know, feed such a crowd. And so you would go to the temple, you would pick out a lamb, again, already defined as being unblemished. It's gone through the period of inspection the last few days. You say, that lamb will work for us. It's, it's big enough. And so what then would take place is the priest would take the lamb, they would cut its neck and drain the blood. So the stipulations in Exodus of the lamb was that the lamb had to be drained of, of the blood, its entrails had to remain, 
And it had to be roasted, very particular. Had to be roasted. It's the mechanism in which the lamb was to be eaten. Now, Jerome, who is a second-generation Christian, so he comes after the destruction of Jerusalem, he writes about the, the ancient Passover meal. Now, he's never seen it in Jerome's writings. And so in Rome, he ends up having, he, there's a whole, a whole book, the dialogue of Trajan or Trojan or some rabbi, and, and this gets recorded down as the mechanism, the procedure of the lamb. I'm going someplace. Remember back the beautiful imagery of the triumphal entry. You know, the, not an accident that Jesus chose to ride on of all a donkey. Why? Because he's not the only one riding on a donkey. The donkeys had saddles on them in which they would put the lambs. It's how they could ensure they would remain unblemished how they would remain protected. So you have one human being riding on a donkey with a bunch of donkeys filled with lambs as Jesus is making his triumphal entry. And why? Well, because John had already introduced him at the beginning of his ministry as the Lamb of God. Not a Lamb of man. The Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And it's just the picture, the parallel, Jesus and these lambs. Because he's the Lamb of God. Now what's fascinating, so Peter and John would go to the temple. They're like, all right, we want that big boy. So the priest would cut, cut the neck. They would drain the blood. Now, in order for the men to be able to carry it after they would skin it, they would take a pomegranate branch. And it had to be pomegranate. Pomegranate, um, it's, it's a very dry wood. And it would have to be dry because if you would cook with it, if the wood heated up and created steam, now you're no longer roasting. They were very, that's why you couldn't use metal. It had to be a very dry wood, so they didn't. Add, you had to roast it. There could be none of the meat cooked in any other facet. They were very particular about this, the, the Jews. So they would take in order for the men to carry the lamb, like 150 pounds, whatever. As they would, up under the entrails of the shoulders, they would take a pomegranate branch, and they would shove it through, up under the rib cage, through the shoulders, so that you could have one guy on one side and another guy on the other side, and you're carrying the lamb between you. Okay? Pomegranate. The stipulation also in Exodus of the lamb is that it could not have any bones broken. Again, the picture of Jesus being the lamb of God. The fact that Jesus had no bones broken. That when they went to break the legs, he was already dead, fulfilling the prophecy. So you have this pomegranate branch going between the shoulders and this horizontal well they would get peter and john they would take the land now they gotta cook it right and so in order to cook it they would have a fire and kind of a vat thing and they would take another pomegranate branch and i don't want to get too graphic here but they would go up through the the bottom and out through the mouth Again, would have to be a pomegranate so that it didn't heat it up. And then they would take the back feet and they would tie the back feet to the vertical branch. And they would take the front limbs and they'd tie it to each end um, of, of the vertical one. And that's what the lamb would be cooked on. Anyone want to take a guess what image that looks like? They would literally... Again, this ancient rabbi made the statement that they crucified the lambs. And 
preparation for Passover. And the imagery of Peter and John having no idea something they had done growing up. You think John, who was the only one at the cross, maybe had some thoughts? Seeing Jesus, the Lamb of God, hanging from a tree. So Peter and John, they get the lamb. They go to prepare. We're told when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. So this is a private dinner. I should note that you could, you could title this or retitle this section, The Final Passover. For 2,000 or so years, the Jewish people would celebrate Passover in preparation for Passover. Because the image of the lamb providing the death to pass over, it's all a picture of Jesus. And every bit of the imagery is pointing to Jesus. And so this night would be the this is the final Passover because Passover for 2,000 years was looking, for the event, looking towards the event that would happen on Passover when God would send his son, the lamb, for his blood to be shed for the remission of sins. And now we look at Passover not in a predictive sense, but we commemorate what Jesus did. So we can look at Passover and Good Friday and look back to what Jesus did. But this is the last Passover as the Passover was intended and its anticipation and its expectation. So evening comes and as they were eating, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Again, this is not the first time that Jesus has, has predicted this, has pointed this out. So they're sorrowful, nothing like killing the mood. And each of them began to say to Jesus, Lord, is it I? Which I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Because, you know, we pick on Judas a bit, but Jesus is like, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And the immediate reaction was like, yeah, that could be me. Is it me? Like there was an awareness within each of these men of their weakness, their frailty, their propensity for doing something stupid. And while they didn't betray, they all fled. And they understood something about themselves. Lord, is it I? Now note, note, Lord, is it I? I have that highlighted and I'll explain in a moment. So Jesus answered and he said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Which is fascinating because they had all dipped their hand in, in the dish. He says, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was, no, betraying him. Like this is in the active tense. He's in the act of, of betraying him. He answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Notice the reaction of the other men was, Lord, is it I? They, they recognized the propensity within themselves, the capacity. But they still uh, attribute the correct title. 
They keep Jesus in his appropriate position, Lord. But when it gets to Judas, in the act of betraying, knowing he's the guilty culprit, he says, Rabbi, teacher, he's downgraded me. Is it I? And Jesus said to him, you have said it. And then we're told Judas leaves at this point. And he goes about his deed. You know, Judas could have repented here. I don't like playing hypotheticals because, well, he didn't. And subsequently, the man's poor choices led to his own ruin. He would go and kill himself. He would give back the money. He would demonstrate what we call worldly sorrow. He was sorry, but it led to his destruction for he went out and hung himself. Judas here had a moment that he could have changed course. Rabbi, is it I? You've said it. It is me. This is what I've been doing. He could have, but he didn't. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the, the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the institution of what's known by several names. The Lord's Supper. It's known as communion. Because it is, it is um, an act of communing. It's known as the Eucharist. It's another term. Eucharist simply meaning giving thanks. That's what Eucharist means. All, all the titles are apt. Interesting to point out that this is the one time that Jesus really is definitive and a command of something to be done in perpetuity moving forward. Uh, we know that because following this, uh, Jesus would appear to the Apostle Paul. We have this recorded in 1 Corinthians 11, where Jesus would teach Paul the Eucharist. The exact same instructions that Jesus institutes here at this Passover uh, gets repeated again to Paul. So we find it being instituted in two different places. We find it being uh, incorporated within the church life, the church community. Interesting. The Passover, again this Seder, had been in existence for thousands of years. And every aspect of this particular meal had defined imagery and significance. All of the labels uh, were accepted, defined, uh, communicated. Don't miss the reality that Jesus here in this moment is taking something that has been done a very particular way 
and he completely redefines it. This is gnarly. So here he is in the midst of this supper, and we're told that he took bread. Now, again, we don't have enough time to get into all of the particulars of the order of things. So you'll have to take my word for it to a degree, but you can study it on your own, and I can point you to some resources. But when we, we were told that he took bread, within the order of the meal, within the course of how things are unfolding, this is not just any piece of bread. At the very beginning of the Seder, there are three pieces of matzah. The middle piece of unleavened bread is removed. It's crushed, and it's hidden. And it's retrieved later, the pieces, and distributed to be eaten. It's Old Testament imagery was Isaac, who we know to be a picture of Christ himself. The promised son, the firstborn. Jesus has the matzah, we, it's called the afikomen, retrieved. This is the bread that he takes. For so many years, this has always represented Isaac. Today, changing it. This is, he says, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gave it. To take, eat, this is my body. The significance, the imagery, this is my body. And then when we're told that he takes the cup, there were four different cups that would be passed around at various points within the Seder meal. This is the third cup. It was known as the cup of redemption. And here Jesus in this moment, he's saying, hey, that afikomen, that's my body that was broken. And this cup, yeah, that's redemption. But it's redemption provided through my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And so Jesus reestablishes these things. And then moving forward, Jesus would say, when you gather together, partake of these elements, commune with me. This is my body. This is the cup. This was the sacrifice. Understand, the lamb would be slaughtered. The body of the lamb would be slaughtered for atonement. It's the precedent established in Leviticus. The body of the lamb would be slaughtered to pay, to satisfy the debt of sin. But that's only half of our problem, isn't it? Just because my sin is atoned for doesn't mean the next day I'm not in need of more atonement because I'm still a sinner. And so it would be the lamb, the body of the lamb, sacrificed for atonement to satisfy a price, but then the blood of the lamb would be used for purification. The blood purified. It is in symbolic of a great exchange where Christ, through his body and his blood, he removes from you your debt of sin. And he replaces it with his righteousness. So that you are now right before God. It's permanent. What the blood of the lamb was sprinkled upon purified it. It sanctified it. It made it holy. And so when Jesus takes these two elements out of the Seder, he's presenting a picture of his ultimate work, what salvation is. 
It's not just the saving from my sin. It's the imparting of a righteous new life. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. I am not what I once was. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul would say, and now I live in him. I live and move and I have my being. And Jesus says, when you gather together, take and eat and drink and remember. Now, it should be noted that this is a, a that there are complicated and conflicting opinions about the, the totality of what Jesus is saying in the sense of, for example, Roman Catholics believe that the wafer literally becomes transubstantiation. It be, it's transformed into the actual body of Christ. And that the cup transforms literally, actually, into the blood of Christ. The problem is that the Bible says that Jesus was sacrificed once for the remission of sins. Jesus doesn't have to continuously be sacrificed. That, there's, that it was permanent. And then there's con transubstantiation, which is like, well, this happens, but it's kind of a spiritual thing. To be fair, I think a lot of times when you're addressing an issue like this, People love to gravitate towards the extremes of a pendulum. I think, yes, the Roman Catholics that say that this is the actual body and blood of Christ, which is why you're not allowed to touch it. It's why it has to be given to you. There's a whole rigmarole and tradition about it. It has to be administered by a priest, but the problem is that I have but one priest. His name is Jesus. There's an extreme position. Like, let's take this incredibly literally, but he's already taking things that are symbolic. But I think the pendulum swings the other direction to, to pure Protestantism. Where it's like, well, this is just all symbolic. And it removes a mystical element that I think is intended and its vagueness. Is it the body of Christ? Absolutely not. Is it merely a symbol? I don't think so. With topics like this, it's probably somewhere in the middle. And if you can figure that out definitively, write a book. My point, the table, the bread, the unleavened bread, and the cup. Jesus says when you gather, partake. Literally take, eat, take, and drink. Make it become part of you. Which is the essence of the gospel of Jesus, right? It's something that we're invited to partake, to experience. We come to the table not just to engage symbols, but there's something spiritual happening where we're engaging a person through symbols. Which is why Jesus says, do this and remembrance of me. What a moment. And they finish, and they sing a hymn. <laughs> this is the only mention of Jesus singing. 
I like to think he probably sounded a lot like me. Jesus sang. What did he sing? Well, the Hallel Psalms are recorded for us in Psalms 113 through 18. And these were the songs of ascent. These were, these were the songs that were sang in conjunction with Passover. It's likely the last few. And you can go read them. Imagine Jesus singing some of the things that are recorded for us in this moment, in this context. They get done. Judas is going to do his deed. They sing a hymn. What a moment. What a moment. The Savior sings a hymn. And then he goes to Gethsemane. And that's where we'll pick up things next Sunday. So, Father, Lord, we just let that sit settle. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you, if you, so a little disclosure, and then I'll let you guys go. So I was listening to a Bible study this week about the lamb and all that with the pomegranate branches. And, and, and I'm listening to this Bible study, and I'm like, why have I never heard this before? Did you get that, did you have the same kind of reaction? Why have I never heard of this before? Can't be true. Right? Because, I, I, I mean, that's like the, the most, pic, it's the perfect picture. Why have I never heard this on an Easter? You know? Or a Good Friday. I come from a solid Bible background. Never heard this before. Can't be true. So I did like way deeper of a dive than I ever probably should have spent time doing. But I had to know. I, I got I to source this. I did. I found, uh, actually I had to pay to get behind a firewall of a research paper produced through the University of Pennsylvania by a PhD that has researched all this. Very heavy reading. Boring. But I, I didn't want to bring something like that without doing a little bit of research. So I'm saying, if you're like, I don't know if I believe you, good. Don't ever just believe what I'm saying. But if you're like, I, like me, I need to know that that is actually true before I go repeat it, just shoot me an email and I'll send you a link uh, to the research paper. And, um, and if you dig deeper than that and find out that it's baloney, just don't let me know. Don't let me know because I'm going to go, that's going to be a go-to and I'm going to use it again. Because it really is, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful thing. So have a wonderful week.